Um, well, I tell you what, after uh, what we've already heard and, um, and, and been through this morning, I, I feel like it would probably just be appropriate for me to give a benediction and send you all home. Uh, but you know, you're not that fortunate. So uh, we are going to actually start this week our study of the book of Colossians. In fact, like Chris said, we've produced uh, a, a little study guide for you, a little booklet. They're free. They're in the back. If you want one right now, you're welcome to get up. I won't think that you're leaving uh, to go and grab one because there is some space there for, for some sermon notes if you'd like to take them. So if you've got that book, you can open it up right now. The text is in there as well, and you can read along with me. We're going to look at Colossians really between now and when Advent starts later this fall, and I'm really excited because this is a fantastic book that really exalts Jesus above all. We're going to look just at the very beginning of it today, just the first couple of verses. So if you've got a Bible with you or if you've got your study, your Colossians study guide, follow along or you can follow along on the screen above me as I read to us Colossians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Paul an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Let's pray. Our Father, we, uh, we thank you that you have promised that your word will last forever, that, that even our amazing stories fade away, that even our joyous celebrations have an end. That the grass will wither and the flowers will fade, but it is your word that will stand forever. So Lord, we come under the authority of your revealed word this morning. We come to hear what you have to say to us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I, I am, I'm not really good at math. My, my family will corroborate that. It's probably been about fourth grade for each of my kids, uh, the time when they would come and they'd say, Dad, can you help me with my math homework? And I'll say, yeah, sure, let me, uh, you should probably call your mother. Uh, because I just don't get it very well. But I will tell you one of the things that has always kind of really confused me in math is that rule about multiplying by zero this one still gets me. I just can't get my head around it, right? You know, if you multiply anything by zero, the answer is zero. So five times zero is zero. And six million multiplied by zero is zero. And I just, as a kid, I could never figure that out, how you could start with something and then introduce the word multiply which in every other sense means that you're going to end up with more of that something and then end up not only with less of that something, but nothing at all. How does that make any sense at all? I don't know. How could something times zero equal zero? Well, isn't it great that actually, even in that crazy, ironic, weird math rule, the gospel is embedded? Because really, that is also what we believe about Jesus, is that anything added to Jesus is actually going to ruin the whole equation. There's a book with a great title. The author has fallen into some trouble lately, but the title of this book is so good. It is Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Let me say that again. Jesus plus nothing 
equals everything. And of course, the opposite of that is also true, that terrible irony, that Jesus plus anything else is going to equal nothing. Then when we start doing Jesus plus and fill in the blank, whatever that thing is, that we're actually going to mess up the entire equation that we are taking away from the gospel rather than adding to it. That in many ways is the theme of the book of Colossians. It's the theme of Colossians that we find even introduced here in the first couple of little verses that Paul is going to explore and roll out for us all throughout this letter and we're going to talk about all throughout this fall is that Jesus and Jesus alone is where we stand for being united with God, for wholeness and fullness, for experiencing the fullness of God. There is nothing else that we need to add to it. So here's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to kind of look at that theme, that idea, and introduce this whole book of Colossians as well. And we're going to talk about the setting of Colossians, the situation in Colossians, and then the solution. The setting, the situation, and the solution. If you're like a note taker and you like to write down those three things, I'm pretty excited. They all start with us. So write those down. You'll be, I'll be proud of you and you'll be proud of me. Let's start with the first one, the setting. Uh, what is the setting of Colossians? And by that, I just mean the background. What's the context for how we get this? Well, what we have as the book of Colossians is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in a town called Colossae. Colossae, Colossians, it's a letter to the Colossians. Colossae was an interesting place. It used to be a fairly large and fairly important city, but by the time of the New Testament and by the time that Paul was writing, it was actually a pretty small town, not all that important. In fact, it was kind of situated on a river, but it was between or around two other much bigger, more important towns and cities. The places where really all of the economics and the culture kind of happened was in the other kind of big cities around there. And there was a young church, a church plant in this little town of Colossae. So it's a small church, a young church in a small town planted by a guy named Epaphras, So this is not even actually one of the churches that was planted by Paul himself, planted by a guy named Epaphras, who we don't even hear about outside of uh, the book of Philemon, which is written to the same people. We don't see Epaphras anywhere else in the Bible. He's kind of a no-name. So we get a little town with a little young church planted by just kind of an obscure church planter. Uh, Maybe that rings some bells for you, because guess what? We live in a little town next to a river, surrounded by two much larger cities, and we're a small, young church. And, uh, you know, you, you may like me, but um, your church planter is not, does not have a book publishing deal. I do not have a Gospel Coalition blog. You know, this is just kind of the regular church with the regular people. But isn't it amazing and encouraging that some of the most elevated An incredible language about who Jesus is shows up in this letter. Some of the best discussion about what who Jesus is and what he's done shows up in this little letter to this little town and this little church. It's such an encouragement, I think, because yeah, I I don't know about you. Listen, you know, we, we put on the face, I think, a lot of times of we're so happy. We don't live in the big city, and we like the pace of life here, and it's slow, and we don't want the traffic, and, and that may be most of you, and you're probably a lot more secure than I am. 
But I can oftentimes feel like, man, just if we kind of had the cool factor of the big city, or if we had kind of the economic impact of the big city, or, or maybe if our church were more important and we're kind of this flagship, and maybe if I was kind of the important preacher preaching in the important church in the important city, then I would feel more important about myself. And it's so humbling and such a good reminder to open up Colossians and see God saying some of the best and most beautiful truth in all of Scripture to those little people in that little church in that little town with a pastor that nobody had ever heard of. It's also a great reminder, isn't it, that the message of the gospel doesn't change. The message of the gospel that it's Jesus plus nothing that gives us everything is the same in Austin and San Antonio and Tokyo and Rome and Corinth and Ephesus and Colossae and New Braunfels. That is the message that we stand on and that we stand on and we have stood on for thousands of years. So there's the setting of Colossians. What about the situation there? Well, the situation in Colossians is that like every young church, there's difficulty. Like every young church, they've got growing pains. And one of the things that seems to be the most difficult in this young church is that they are being taught there's an influence of some folks who are teaching some false doctrine. And that false doctrine goes something like this. Stop me if you've heard this. Jesus plus, insert the blank. Scholars will say this boils down to this kind of fancy word called syncretism. Syncretism basically is when you start with one thing kind of in its pure form and then you take some other things and you weave them together and you get something totally different. And so religious syncretism is you start with actually the orthodox message of the gospel, but you start to work in a little bit of the cultural message. And you start to work in maybe some messages from some other religions and other places. And what you get is actually something that's not distinct anymore, and it looks totally different than what you started with. It's Jesus plus a bunch of other things, and now we're calling that Christianity. And so these young Christians in Colossae were tempted to believe that they could only experience God and experience union with him and experience the fullness of God if it was Jesus plus some other stuff. Now, it's a little unclear what that other stuff was. It may have been asceticism, kind of this removal from the world. It may have been mysticism. It may have been some influence from Greek culture, or it may have been influence from Jewish culture. Jews who were saying, okay, yeah, Jesus is great and all, fine, we'll give you that. But in order to really be Christians, you've also got to really be Jewish. In order to really know God and really be united to him and experience his fullness, you also have to add in all of these other religious kind of activities that you've got to go through. You got to be circumcised. You got to keep the Jewish calendar. You've got to keep all of the Jewish ceremonial law. And that's the way that you will come to understand who God is. That's syncretism. That is Jesus plus. Now, maybe you're like, well, I'm a shoot. We don't live in the first century. We don't live in Colossae. So maybe we don't have to deal with that kind of stuff anymore. Well, unfortunately, I got bad news. Syncretism is still alive and well. Uh, 2009, there was a study done by the Pew Research Firm that was trying to kind of see where the overlap is between different religions and cultural ideas. They were basically exploring syncretism. 
to see if it was still around. Here's what they came up with. 65% of the people that they surveyed showed evidence of contrary or contradictory beliefs. In addition to believing the Bible, they also believed in reincarnation, astrology, seances, ghosts, psychics, etc. One of the researchers said this. Uh, he said, mixing and matching practices and beliefs is much more the norm than it is the exception. I think it's true. That's 2009. I don't think it's gotten any better since 2009. Because in many ways, in our culture, the, the, the basic way that we kind of attach ourselves to some spirituality is that we start to combine all of the different kind of cultural and religious streams that we can find in the world. It is the religion, really, of, you know, Chipotle, right? You go to Chipotle, and you're going to build your own burrito. You got all of that stuff laid out for you. And you start by saying, yeah, what kind of, of tortilla do you want? And what kind of meat do you want? Do you want beans or rice or veggies or guacamole or salsa? And you can just walk right down the aisle, down the line, and just choose exactly what you want to put in that little burrito. It's a cafeteria. It's just cooler because it's burritos. But you get to choose, right? That's the beauty of it. And we approach religion in the same way in many ways in our culture. Like, yeah, it's great. I love kind of some of that evangelicalism. You know, I love that it's, it's joyful and, and people seem to be happy about it. But let's work in a little bit of that kind of seriousness, you know, as well, that we find in Roman Catholicism and, and shoot, Islam. Those guys are really serious. Let's work that in. Maybe there's some discipline I can kind of get in my life. But I don't want too much of it. So we'll throw a little bit of Hinduism in there because I like this idea that, you know, if I mess it up the first time, maybe I get to try again. And man, Buddhism is really nice for that peace and that calm and that quiet. And, you know, I've been reading a lot of Marie Kondo. And so, you know, I'm kind of into that. And so that's really exciting for me now. And we start to mix and match. And we put together this thing that we say, now here it is. Here's my spirituality. Here's how I understand myself and how I understand the world around me. How I understand who God is and who he's made me to be. That is, by and large, the way that our culture understands spirituality. It's mix and match. We get to choose. But guess what? Syncretism is also alive and well in the church. It's alive and well with Christians. Because any time we do Jesus plus that makes me okay, that makes me right with God, that makes me better than everybody else, we're doing syncretism. And so when we start to mix things like consumerism with Christianity, we end up with something that really looks a lot more like the mall than it does like the Bible. It's a Christianity that makes me happy all the time and is easy for me all the time and is going to fulfill and feed me rather than the Christianity of the Bible that actually calls me to love and sacrifice. Or we kind of end up with this second tier, second level holiness, right? Yeah, there's the gospel and that's cool for everybody, but then there's also those people who have kind of gotten the second blessing they're kind of the, the varsity Christians now, and so they're on this new next level. It's Jesus plus my experience. Or maybe it's Jesus plus my social activity. Look at the way that I think so progressively about the world. Look at all the stuff that I do. Yeah, the gospel's great, but look what I'm doing. It's so good. It's Jesus plus, isn't it? Even the ways that we can kind of segment further and further what we think about it. And guys, even our theological heritage can be added to the gospel and we can end up with syncretism. Yeah, the gospel's great. 
But you know, what about the right way to do worship and the right way to do discipleship and the right way to raise my children and the right way to do schooling and all of these new little right ways and whether or not you should get a vaccine or wear a mask or what you think about, whatever it is, fill in the blank, becomes the new kind of second tier of Christianity that I've reached above all these other people. It's Jesus plus. And friends, the terrible irony of the math of the gospel is that Jesus plus anything is going to ruin the equation. It is going to give you nothing. You cannot add to the gospel and get more because the gospel cannot become more. So what's the solution? What's the solution for those in Colossae? What is it for us? Well, I want to just briefly drill down here into verse 2 and look at it very quickly. Let me read this to you one more time. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. To the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. That first word maybe is an interesting one, surprising one to you. You know, it's the, it's the word that actually Paul uses the most to talk about Christians. He opens up his letter and he says, to the saints. And we may have this concept that a saint, you know, is somebody who gets their picture on the wall in a Catholic church or somebody we should pray to. Or maybe it's somebody, again, who's kind of this next level, higher order of Christian, right? Mother Teresa, she's a saint. Me, not so much because my life doesn't look like that. But you know that Paul actually defines, the way he defines saint is that if you are a Christian, to be a saint, really the, the, the root of this term is to be made holy, to be set apart. Those who are holy ones, who have been washed in the fountain of Jesus' blood and have been made clean by his activity, not our own, that's a saint. To belong to Jesus because he has forgiven you of your sins, that's a saint. To be forgiven and welcomed into his household, to be made new and declared righteous on his, uh, on his behalf because of what he's done, not because of what you've done, that's a saint. Somebody who still struggles in their life and doesn't have it all together and belongs to Jesus because he has died for them and been resurrected to new life for them and given, him, uh, given us his life, imputed his righteousness to us, guess what? That's a saint. A saint isn't somebody who's got their life together perfectly. A saint isn't somebody who's doing more for Jesus than everybody else is. A saint isn't somebody who's got their picture somewhere or who gets their prayers addressed to. A saint is somebody who has been made right by the blood of Christ. And friends, if that is you, then you are a saint. God, through Paul here in this letter, is addressing you to the saints and faithful brothers. So how about that second part, brothers? Well, first of all, in Greek, this is not a gender-specific term. It means brothers and sisters. So ladies, this includes you as well. And all that it really means is that when we belong to Jesus, there is both a vertical and a horizontal truth in place. We have been made right with God vertically. We've been united to him through Christ alone. And now that means we are actually united to one another. We are brought into a family together. I used to live in South Louisiana. And in South Louisiana, they, they love to do parades. Basically, any time between the beginning of January and, and Lent, there's a parade like every day. 
And the parades there, they were always fun. They were always interactive. If you go to New Orleans, you know, it's pretty likely, actually, you end up seeing the, the folks who are leading that parade is like a little jazz band. It's a little kind of marching jazz band, and they're playing, they're beating on a drum, and they're playing trumpets, and it's super exciting. And there's a good chance they're going to play, actually, when the saints go marching in. And you're standing there, and you're watching, and you're singing when the saints go marching in, and you're hearing them, and you're waiting kind of for the saints to come marching in, right? Except that the way that Paul describes it here is a much more interactive process because it's us not standing on the sidelines but joining the parade to be there as the saints walking together, bound arm in arm to one another. And friends, bound by one thing and one thing only. What makes us brothers and sisters in Christ is what Jesus has done for us. It is not what Jesus has done for us and then the way that we voted in the last presidential election. It is not what Jesus has done for us and whether or not we think we should be wearing masks everywhere we go. It is not what Jesus has done for us and whether or not we've kind of experienced some higher order of spirituality. It's not what Jesus has done for us and what we did this week that was so great or so terrible. It is not what Jesus has done for us and then what we've done for ourselves. No, what makes us brothers, what makes us those who are marching arm in arm in that wonderful parade of saints is that it's Jesus and him alone. And just in case you didn't get it, Paul clarifies it with the next two words, in Christ. To the saints and the faithful brothers in Christ. I love actually the way that this phrase is laid out in the original Greek. It actually says, in Colossae, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ. It's like you've got these bookends bracketing so that Paul wants you to know, okay, I get it. This is where you live. This is where you physically reside. But let me tell you where you spiritually reside. Let me tell you who you really belong to. Let me tell you where you are truly found. To be in Christ, and and listen, we use the opposite language so oftentimes, right? We say that Christianity is actually about Christ in me. It's about Jesus in me. Yeah, I get that, except that the biblical language is actually just the opposite. Over and over and over in the Bible, many, many times, especially the Apostle Paul is saying over and over, you belong in Christ. You have been transferred from the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. You have been taken from your old life and you belong now in Christ. That is where you are located And your access, your standing, your identity, your ability is all found in him and not in you. Again, where we used to live in Baton Rouge, there was an elder in the church in which I served whose name was Jerry Stovall. Jerry uh, played football for LSU in the 60s. And that is quite an understatement, actually. He played football on both sides. He played offense and defense. He was an All-American, a consensus All-American. He was the number two pick in the NFL draft. He actually was number two in Heisman voting that year as well. Went on to play in three NFL Pro Bowls. Came back and was the head coach uh, of LSU football team. And so you can imagine, if you lived in Baton Rouge, I mean, Jerry Stovall was like royalty. It was like walking around with the king of Baton Rouge if you were there with this guy. And he was a wonderful, loving, and godly man, and he was so kind, and he asked me one time, hey, do you want to go, like, do you want to go take a look at the LSU football facility? You know, I can kind of get you in. To which I said, sure, absolutely I do. 
And we walked in, and I kid you not, we walked in, and there's, there's the, the, the receptionist. And on the other side of the receptionist, there's a statue of the guy I'm standing next to. I never experienced that in my life. Like, I'm walking next to the person whose statue I'm looking at. It was crazy. And we walked all around, you know, this football complex, and every single door opened, and they would say, Coach Stovall, so good to see you. Come in this way, you know, wherever you want to go, whatever. And they wouldn't even look at me, you know, and he would say, this is my friend Derek. And they would say, Derek, we're so happy to have you, because he would say, he's with me. And everywhere he went, I got to go. And every door that got open for him was open for me. And all the access that he had, I got to have because I was with him. I was found in Jerry. (laughs) Now think about how silly it would have been for me to look at those people and say, yeah, and you know what? Actually, I can play like seven chords on the guitar. And uh, I make pretty good pancakes. I'm not going to lie, I make pretty good pancakes. And in fourth grade, once I made all A's. So I kind of got all that going for me. What would they say if I said that? They would be like, what are you talking about, dude? We don't care. We care about what he's done, not about what you've done. You're here because you're with him, right? Jerry plus whatever my little list of accomplishments meant nothing to him, to them. But Jerry plus nothing got me everywhere. Friends, that is the story of the gospel, and that was what it means to be in Christ, is that Jesus plus nothing gives us everything. And I'll close just with this, is that it is Jesus plus nothing that also gives us our hope. It's been a hard couple of months for me and our family in a lot of ways. We we lost a friend last weekend. A friend of ours died. Second friend, actually, to die in the last two months. And in between that, my aunt died. And you know what? You turn on the news, and it's not so happy these days. Hurricanes flood out cities. Evil governments take over countries. Crazy people fly airplanes into office buildings. Where is our hope? Where is our hope when friends die? Where is our hope when terrible things happen in this world? It is in Jesus and in him alone. It is in his return to make all things new and all things right. It is in his blood and his righteousness that washes us of the sin that we have to deal with. It's not just out there on the news, but in here in our hearts too. It is Jesus and Jesus alone. That is our hope. That is our trust. May God make it so this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for, uh, for this letter to Colossae. We're thankful, Lord, for the wonderful proclamation of the gospel that we get to open up and read about. We're thankful, Lord, for the the testimony to that same gospel that we got to hear through Vera Crawford's mouth today. We're thankful, Lord, that it's you and you alone who work miraculously. So, Lord, will you train our foolish hearts that are so prone to grab onto other things? Loosen our grip on them and tighten our grip on you alone. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.